Save on potting soil, tillers, seeds, books about farming, plus other products and services with show specials from the Growing Stronger Collaborative Conference. And you don't need to register for the conference to access these deals. Follow the link in the show notes to save money on things you need for your farm. Also, special thanks to these high-level sponsors of the Growing Stronger Collaborative Conference. Organic Prairie, Organic Valley, People's Food Co-op, Wisconsin Farmers Union, Compere Financial, Patagonia, Barn to Door, Blue River Organic Seed, EcoCert, and the Organic Consumers Association. Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. This is Chuck from Moses. With me again today is Kelly Maynard from the UW Center for Cooperatives. My name is Kelly Maynard, and I'm a co-op development specialist at the University of Wisconsin Center for Cooperatives. The center is based on the Madison campus, and broadly, our center does uh, research, education, outreach on the cooperative business model. We've been around um, since 1962, and we work across kind of all co-op sectors and, and types of ownership. I tend to focus on co-op development in the food and agriculture space, although that is uh, expanding a little bit with some of the projects I have these days. And most of my work is, is really focused. It's funded through um, USDA Rural Development. Great. So I said something about this on the last one, but basically we're doing a little series with the UW Center for Cooperatives to kind of just because I'm not a co-op expert. So it was nice to work alongside you to ask deeper questions than I could just being a, the generalist person that I am. So thanks for thanks for helping us out on this. I really appreciate that a lot. Absolutely. And I'm I'm learning about new co-ops as well in this in this podcast series. So it's super, it's super fun to learn a little more deeply about innovative things that people are doing with, with the co-op model. Our center, UW Center for Co-ops, is a member of a national network of co-op development centers who are funded through USDA and, and other means. And so if there are folks listening who you know, want to have some follow-up questions or maybe are in early stages of thinking about co-op startup, should definitely feel free to be in touch. And if you're not super close to, to me in Wisconsin, I can certainly connect you to a co-op development center and co-op developer closer to where you are. Yeah, there's there's kind of always support for what you want to do out there. I feel like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like your your uh, farmers and people who want to get into farming. It's like you're not on your own trying to do this. There's models. There's people to help. There's people to ask questions to. That's something yeah, that. But I knowing have to where to start to. looking, you know, when you sit down to Google, it can feel a little intimidating. Like, what do I search for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Search for Kelly Maynard at the UW <sighs> Center for Cooperatives. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully you won't even have to search for me. We'll just be in the show notes. And you can find Kelly's contact information in the show notes. So if you're thinking about starting a co-op, she's a great person to start with. Now on to our conversation with Hannah Breckbill. Hannah is one of the 2020 Moses Changemaker awardees, honoring her work to build community for queer farmers. We talk a bit about that today, but mostly we focused on another super interesting aspect of her work. She started a diversified vegetable farm as a sole proprietor before transitioning to worker ownership when she brought on her second cousin, Emily Fagan, as a co-farmer and co-owner. Let's get to it. 
Hannah, do you want to introduce yourself and introduce the farm and tell us a brief history of, of how you got to where you are? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so my name is Hannah Breckbill, and our farm is Humble Hands Harvest, and we're northeast of Decorah, Iowa. And I started Humble Hands Harvest in 2013 after working on vegetable farms for a few years, um, and I started as a sole proprietorship working on rented land. Um, and I went through two different rental spots in two years, in four years, so two years at each place. And then in 2017 was when we had the opportunity to, to actually buy our own land or acquire permanent land. And it's when it's the year that I was able to get Emily to join me in the farm business. The year before that, in 2016, I, was, I said to myself early that year, I don't think I'm going to farm again next year unless I have permanent land and someone who's equally invested in the business with me. So, so those two things were really key to kind of the sustainability of my being able to farm. From there, um, Emily and I formed an LLC the first year and, and had some kind of arrangements to, to see us through that first year. Um, and then after that was when we decided to get really intentional operating agreements. And um, at that point we formed a uh, LLC, but it's, it's uh, organized as a worker owned cooperative. So we wrote kind of an operating agreement to, to express ourselves that way and, and to make that structure for ourselves. Yeah. And in terms of the, the farming that we do, we have two acres of um, organic vegetables. We, have a on a 22 acre piece of property total, some of which we own and some of which we rent. And we pasture a flock of sheep, just 15 U sheep flock. And then we also raise feeder pigs on pasture and we've been planting trees. So we're going for the hyper diverse kind of farm. And there are two of us who own it right now. And we hire one other person um, who's on track to become an owner if she wants to, and we want her to. <laughs> So. That's great. And if I have this correctly, right now there's sort of like three owners where it's you, Emily, and then the commons. Is that right? Yes. So when we started in 2017, we basically had access to a bare piece of ground. It had been crop ground. It had been planted to hay. So we basically had this hay ground that was certifiable organic and nothing else. <laughs> um, and in order to grow vegetables, which is what we're, what we're in it to do, we needed a well, we needed access to water um, and electricity to pump the well. And we also, you know, a greenhouse is really up on that list as well. And then a deer fence um, because we're surrounded by woods and wild places. So uh, definitely needed that. And so that was a lot of infrastructure that we needed to just plop down on, on this land. And I had built up some savings Emily had not, she's younger than me. So she was like pretty fresh out of college at that point. What we ended up doing was we fundraised a kind of significant amount of money to be able to put in the well. And, and yeah, our fundraising basically covered the digging of the well and a little bit of the deer fence. And then my savings covered the rest. Yeah. And so when we thought about the way we were kind of organized financially, it didn't quite make sense to have that those fundraising dollars just belong to me, Hannah Breckville, or belong to Emily. 
Um, and so we we created a separate account in our accounting that we call the commons. And the intention with that account is that any money that's given to us to help us farm, to help us access this work, then that money belongs to the commons and we will pass that on as a gift to whoever is next um, or that that won't ever be sold. Um, so it's a kind of a decommodified wow. portion of our land. That's really interesting. Kelly, are you aware of any analogs to this and other farms or, or co- cooperative businesses or anything like that? No, I mean, not not quite in that name. Hannah, just so I understand, when you say the, the commons, do you feel like that's held with humble hands? Yep. The equity of Humble Hands Harvest, which is an LLC, mm-hmm. is... For tax purposes, it's just split between me and Emily. But right. for for our internal purposes, I hold a portion of that capital based on what I've invested. Emily holds a portion of the capital, and then the Commons holds another portion of the capital. The thing that it makes me think of is um, offering preferred stock. Uh, cooperatives can solicit investors when you when you frame it as preferred stock. There are a bunch of like rules around it and agricultural cooperatives in particular. And there are, there are exemptions that cooperatives can qualify for in, in terms of how they structure the stock um, and who they sell it to and things. I mean, you don't have to file with the federal securities and exchange commission, which because that's costly and lots of hurdles, but it's, it's a mechanism for investors to support the co-op and usually, and it's with a low return like a low dividend. I think by law in Wisconsin, it's capped at 8%. Most co-ops that use that mechanism offer less than that, somewhere between 4 and 6% return to investors. And so it's like a slow money mechanism, but it it's not, right? It's to the co-op. It's, an, it's a type of equity that lives with the co-op, right? It doesn't belong to any one person. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it makes me think kind of of that mechanism and you guys went about it a different way and gave it, you know, a name that certainly resonates for you and both the type of business you are and what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the big difference that's just very different from anyone that I'm aware of (laughs) is that we are, we just asked for gifts and we aren't paying them back ever. We're just going to pay them forward. That's a good distinction. <laughs> yeah. Paying it back versus paying it forward. Absolutely. So Hannah, you talked about who uh, the the owners of Humble Hands are now, and that there's a, maybe one more joining the fold as an owner. Who do you envision becoming future owners? What would motivate people to join Humble Hands? Yeah. So the reason we set up ourselves as a cooperative was because of how challenging it is to access land and how how much better life is when when you have people to work with. <laughs> Neither Emily nor I were interested in are, are like very consider ourselves very adept at managing employees. We would rather work alongside people uh, and make decisions together. So th- those were some kind of motivations in f- creating this structure the way we did. We wanted to create an onboarding process where people wouldn't have to put down a ridiculous amount of money that's unattainable um, in order to be part of the ownership of the farm. And we wanted to be able to work equally, practice our skills in collaboration. 
so yeah, that's that's why we formed a cooperative. And I wanna I wanna like take a moment to acknowledge cooperative history in the U.S. is a largely a black history, and black folks in the South pioneered cooperatives that owned land that took care of community. And so we're standing on a lot of shoulders to be able to do what we're doing here and wanting to name that cooperatives exist as an alternative to the economic systems that we have. And I would say the damaging economic systems that we have that are keeping people down, a lot of different people. And so our ability, our privilege in being being able to access the resources necessary to be able to form this cooperative is something worth kind of confronting and grappling with. And yeah, and just wanting to recognize that cooperatives are formed because people don't have what they need and they need to band together to get what they need. <laughs> so, so in our case, the thing that we needed to band together to, to be able to attain was the ability to manage this land, to work on this land. So for future members of the co-op, the land that we're on is just 22 acres, so it, it's finite, very finite. And so we'll just be having probably a maximum of probably five worker owners on this particular piece of land. But we're going to take it really slow as well, because we need to know that we're going to work well with everybody who's who's going to become part of it. So yeah, it's, it's a very, very much a long game. And that's the one thing that I really love about knowing that I have permanent access to this land is like... I can take my time and build it really right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Did the stress of being a sole proprietor, like the only person responsible for the success or failure of the farm and just like the day-to-day operations, did that play into your decision too? Absolutely, yeah. There are a couple of dimensions because uh, as a a sole proprietor farmer, I was not making enough money to, to pay employees. I just wasn't. So I knew that in, if I was going to expand my business, I needed to expand labor capacity and I needed the labor to be able to share the risk that I was taking on, which meant that they had to be a co-owner. So luckily, Emily was willing to do that, like super brave choice. <laughs> and we've yeah. been able to make it work because she's because both of us, we work together really well and we have complementary strengths. And so we've really been able to grow the farm kind of beyond beyond what I had imagined when I was a sole proprietor. Also, Emily and I worked together for one year as kind of co-farmers. And actually we we formed this LLC, but the LLC was only for the vegetable part of the operation. And I was owning the land and doing all the livestock and that was under my sole proprietorship. So that first year, that was kind of our trial year to figure out if we wanted to do this. And after that year, the like main concern that Emily had was the whole community. I had been farming here for five years and she was new to the area relatively. And so the whole community thought that Emily was my helper. And that was really annoying <laughs> to both of us, but especially to Emily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, really working on our our cooperative bylaws and like really dictating to ourselves how equal we were was a really key part of moving our like selves forward in public as well as as equals. Yeah. And that's principle too, the democratic member control too, so that you both have say in the direction of of where things are going. So 
Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like how do you how do you determine how decisions are made and do you each have more control or more say over different enterprises or aspects of the farm or how does that work in practice? Yeah, in practice we each do have our own realms of of work and responsibility. So Emily does the pigs, I do the sheep. I do most of the harvest while Emily washes and packs. I do most of the communications. Emily does most of the data collection as necessary. And and we each make our decisions in those realms and we consult with the other person when when it feels relevant. But it's a it's a one member one vote kind of situation and there are just two of us. So we have <laughs> we have equal say ultimately, especially in like, you know, big financial decisions and that kind of thing. Um and so we just have to you just have to come to agreement on them. Yeah. So as we get bigger as a cooperative, we're going to have to think more, more specifically about how to make big decisions. And do we want to do it by consensus or do we want to have a voting structure and what kinds of decisions require votes and, you know, all of that. So that'll be something that we'll dig into over time. So you talked about how you all on paper incorporated as an LLC and used an operating agreement to give the shape of a worker-owned cooperative and how decision-making is is one really big piece of things that go into an operating agreement or, or bylaws. What kinds of other things are in your operating agreement that help shape what you and how you and Emily do things now, but also kind of anticipating more owners? Yeah, a lot in our operating agreement is about how we how we make decisions, how often we meet about things. So we we've put into our operating agreement that we have an annual retreat every year and we always look forward to it because we like take a few days out of our out of our time and really think about all aspects of what we're doing. We have a feelings check-in, we have budget time, you know, etc. So yeah, that kind of decision-making stuff and how often we need about things. But the the bulk of the operating agreement or the the important pieces of it are how we how we account for capital and how we distribute income. And the way we distribute income is right now we make an effort to work the same number of hours in a year and we just keep track of our hours worked on a calendar and then we pay ourselves the same salary we consider ourselves a worker-owned co-op, which means that the work that we do is our patronage of the co-op. And so the benefits that we get from the co-op are based on how much we work, basically. As you're adding new people, are you going to have to increase in scale or increase in profitability or do more enterprises or something like that for everyone to make enough money? Or it, it, it seems a little bit less certain that adding another person, meaning adding another equal chunk of income on there as well. Yeah. So right now we have an employee that we hire and when, if she transitions to, to an owner, that chunk of money that we pay as wages would then transition to her salary. So we have capacity, we know for sure for one more owner. And then, yeah, in terms of future owners, we, we can envision more um, production from just the field that we have that is in vegetables. We can envision how, how that could happen if we had more labor, if we had more members. Um, and we are also planting a lot of, we have an apple, two acre apple orchard planted that won't be producing for a few years yet, but at some point we'll need 
the labor to harvest it and we'll be making income from it. So that kind of, that kind of growth of um, production. An interesting part of the, the apple orchard thing in particular is I, I was in a training for beginning apple growers a few years ago and there were three farmer panelists that were basically doing the training the whole time. And one of them said, I don't know anyone who's making a living off apples who has a mortgage. And at that point, I was like, well, how is anybody like, <laughs> how does anybody get into growing apples? But this seems like a way actually, like you could bring on someone with that expertise, they could become an owner without having to, you know, have that same level of debt that they're trying to pay off. Yeah, totally. That's, it feels like, it feels totally impossible to start an apple orchard by buying land and planting apple trees because there's no way to cash flow that for years and years. And then, and then even so, like <laughs> there, there's just so much. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless you're coming at it with, with wealth already. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and so yeah. this is, this is a way for us to leverage the wealth, <laughs> parenthetical wealth that we're, um, generating through vegetables <laughs> to, to expand into other enterprises that we're really excited about because the other enterprises that we're doing grazing and, and perennial crops are, are the like regenerative future that we need. Right. And, and so we're really excited to be able to use our money that way and, and, and spread out what we're earning from the vegetables into these other enterprises. Though it is, it is interesting to note that like when someone buys a tomato from us, they're also buying all of these other aspects of our work that we're doing. And yeah, and it's unclear to me whether that's fair to the consumers to make them pay for all of this other stuff um, <laughs> or whether it's, whether it's fair to us to be, to be using the like small amount of money that we can make for growing vegetables and to be spreading it so, so widely. Have you found that being a cooperative or like being organized this way helps you market your crops better? Like, do you think that differentiates you in people's minds at farmer's markets or even dealing with like wholesale accounts and stuff like that? Um, I haven't noticed a difference in sales. I, I haven't been able to figure out a competitive advantage in terms of sales. Um, I think it does differentiate us in the farming world. Like the fact that two women who are not, you know, related to each other, although we are related, we're second cousins, but that's doesn't figure into the picture. We didn't really know each other growing up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so two women not related to each other, like we're, we're very different than a family farm or whatever. And, and so the, the images that get portrayed about farmers were like kind of different than that. And, and that feels important to me when I talk about farming with other farmers, because like the, a lot of the models that people are expected to use don't work for most people. And so we should probably change some things about the way farmer is expected to look. Now for a quick break to let you know about an ongoing free training series. The University of Minnesota's Center for Farm Financial Management is partnering with Moses to present the Empowered Farm Financials Workshop Series. The workshops focus on topics and tools developed to help farms of any size manage their financial situation and plan for the future. The tools include farm financial planning, financial analysis, business and transition planning, land rental agreements, and more. Recordings of the first two are available now at mosesorganic.org. 
Training one is called Planning for the Road Ahead, Business and Transition Planning. And training two is called Taking Charge of Your Finances. The last two workshops in the series are next Wednesday, March 24th, Navigating Farm Financial Information, and then on March 31st, Negotiating Land Rental Agreements. The free online workshops begin every Wednesday at noon Central Time. The link to register is in the show notes. Now back to our conversation with Hannah. So when you were thinking about how to structure this enterprise, why was the cooperative structure appealing to you? versus some other structure like a nonprofit where you know, people could also make donations and things. Yeah. So a lot of people ask me, why aren't you a nonprofit? And yeah, it would be easier to get donations because people would believe me more <laughs> um, and, and use the tax write-offs and stuff. And uh, I can't offer tax write-offs. But it felt important to me at the time and still does that the farmers should have ownership of, of what they're doing. And I didn't want to create a structure where I had a board that was deciding things for, for me when I was doing all the work of farming. And that's the main reason that I felt like farmer ownership feels important to me and worker ownership feels important to me. And nonprofits don't necessarily offer that. There are some that can and do their workers self-directed nonprofits, but yeah, but it, it didn't feel quite right. And uh, your primary purpose is still producing food to support yourself, right? Producing food basically. to sell to people, rather so, than like your primary purpose being like education or community. Right? Yeah, our primary purpose is a for-profit purpose. We're trying to we're trying to make money on vegetables, and so we're trying to do it differently and in interesting ways. But ultimately, we want to own it. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think for folks who work towards creating worker co-ops in whatever sector, right? The notion, the employees, the people doing the day-to-day being also able to make the big decisions and and have a say about big picture. That's a huge motivation behind most worker co-ops, I think. So I totally get it. Um, yeah, and no one, no one can fire you. <laughs> yeah, we're like it, you, a board could fire you if you were mm-hmm. a nonprofit or something. So mm-hmm. there's that too. <laughs> yeah, so we know that co-ops that embrace education, training, and information for their member owners and their community are uh, more likely to be successful and last a good long time. Um, how are you incorporating education and, and training into the DNA of Humble Hands Harvest? The main thing is that every employee that we have, we view as a potential worker owner. And so it's really important to us to get them up to speed on every aspect of our business, not just how to how to do the, the day-to-day harvest the scallions, whatever, but also to like understand the finances and understand all the different things that we're, we're dealing with, understand marketing. Yeah. So that's, that's the main way. Basically we're, we're training one or two people at a time and how to be a farmer with us. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any other ways. Well, I mean that, that right there is really significant for, I, I've worked on a bunch of farms and very few of them gave that level of training and that purpose and that thought into it. So that right there is, is very significant to me. If I like com- comparing it to my experience working on farms, it was just really variable depending on what that particular farmer felt like including me in or something. So 
I'm going to ask a leading question because I know the answer, but when you and Emily were thinking through the structure and, and putting it in place, were there particular educational resources or training that you leaned on and that you would recommend for others who maybe are considering something similar to your structure? Totally. Yeah. We sat down with a friend who showed us the bylaws that she had used to make her kind of tech worker-owned co-op. And it's a template and it's from, we, we accessed it through the Sustainable Autonomies Law Center, who yeah, they're doing great work and offering great resources in cooperative, especially worker-owned cooperatives, I think. And it was actually a cartoon operating agreement. So it was really easy to understand visuals. And yeah, we, we learned everything we know about capital accounts <laughs> from that cartoon. <laughs> so... That's great. We'll have to put a link to that in the show notes. And I will just echo that Sustainable Economies Law Center is doing really great work and providing a lot of amazing resources and, and content in the worker co-op space. So in co-op world, we often talk about principle six or P6, cooperation among cooperatives. How are you collaborating with other entities, including any cooperatives? That's the big question right now. You know, Chris Newman's talking about how to make giant food systems that are cooperative. And so I've trained myself to think about my 22 acres and what we're going to do with that. But in pretty recent years, and actually this winter in particular, we've been in conversations with other food businesses in our area and trying to imagine ways that we can really lean on each other. Um, in a kind of cooperative manner. And, you know, we might even form a cooperative altogether at some point, but just different businesses, like someone grazing goats, someone growing like super specialty crops, people who are doing farm to table kinds of work. So uh, I'm really excited about the future there and also very aware that it's, it's going to be a long, a long road to figuring it all out and lots of process, lots of lots of thinking through how, how do we want to relate and how do we want to, how much do we want to share, I guess. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Chris Newman because I feel like a lot of, of what you've been saying, it kind of echoes a lot of the things that he talks about with the shortcomings of the family farm model <laughs> for a lot of people and especially for people that don't come from that background. Yeah, it's like to really feed a lot of people and to feed people who aren't privileged to have the money to pay for expensive vegetables from nice small farms. It's like you need a system and feels like farmers markets aren't necessarily a food system. It, it, I guess it is technically a system of distributing food, but it's like a really limited small food system. So it's exciting to see where things might go with that, with, with those other operations you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Principle seven of our seven co-op principles, concern for community, is often a driving force for co-op creation. And I feel like you've touched on this in a lot of ways, but what role did your concern for community play in the development of Humble Hands Harvest? And you know, how do you serve communities now? Communities can be very broadly defined. Yeah, so I got into farming because I wanted to do something real <laughs> um, and I wanted to be able to impact people in a positive way. And it felt like feeding people was a great way to do that. And so that's kind of where I came to farming from is, is a, a desire to be useful to a community of people. And then as I developed as a farmer and as I learned more about 
the challenges inherent in the kind of work I was trying to do, I started thinking about community in terms of who can access the land, who can who can do this work. And that's where we really are trying to make an impact in, in this moment is like, how can we expand the community of people who are able to access land and, and do the work of farming and feeding communities? So that's that's a really big, big thing that I, I see us doing in this moment. And I, I hope to kind of fade less into the spotlight at some point in, in time <laughs> to have my work be replicated enough <laughs> that I don't have to talk about it anymore um, <laughs> would be really fun. Um, <laughs> but until then, I'm... I'm really excited to share about what we've done and and imagine ways that it can be adapted to different situations. And then another thing that I'll add, because I probably should, is, is the fact that as a as a queer person starting in agriculture, I didn't have a sense of like my queerness and my farming being really related to each other. And in fact, my communities, my queer community and my ag community were entirely separate communities that didn't understand each other. And so over the past few years, I've actually been able with the help of many people to develop, to work on having a queer farmer community, to intersect those those communities of people. And that has been really rewarding and gratifying. Yeah, shout out to queer farmers. And a lot, so many queer farmers are, are doing different work, work that kind of interrogates the, the family farm narrative. Uh, because our families look different often and are often chosen families. And, and how do we make that kind of family, make different models just as legitimate to be able to do the work that we want to do? So you were one of the 2021 Moses Changemaker Award winners. And in your speech at the conference a couple weeks ago, you talked about the queering of agriculture. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think of queer as as a verb, as an action. You can queer something by by kind of questioning the underlying assumptions there and by maybe building a different system that meets needs better. And that meets more people's needs. And, and so you can queer a lot of things. There are a lot of things that need queering <laughs> in our world. And we need to queer the way that we relate to the planet because the planet is telling us that we can't keep doing the way that we've been doing. We need to queer the way that we relate to, to race because it's not working <laughs> for any of us. Yeah. And, and I think what our farm is, is working on and excelling in is queering the way re- we relate to economics and ownership. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy to have an identity that also like leads me to doing work that is outside of the mainstream. <laughs> and it, it, yeah. it feels, yeah, feels good. Yeah. Another question I guess I had is, um, and this could be maybe also for, for Kelly, but like if a farmer is listening to this and they're, you know, the family farmer and it's been stressing them out and they <laughs> like, don't like the way that they relate to labor, basically, what what are some ways that like a family farmer could move into this kind of thing where, especially if they're more established, you know, if they've been farming for 20 years or something, it feels like it might be a different proposition for that in that kind of scenario than than farming for like a couple of years where a lot of the equity came from gifts and things like that. Do you have any insight into that or any ideas for like how someone might bring someone else into ownership without them needing a large down payment to buy the farm from them mm-hmm. or just a lot of debt? 
Right. Yeah, that's the huge question, right? Because yeah, a lot of people have built built a lot in their lifetimes and then trying to get a young person with no capital to to take it over. It's just kind of impossible. It's a brick wall. So I don't I don't have any like super clear insights, but one thing is maybe maybe the new people coming in, there could be more than one of them. Like like a cooperative could take on someone's older farm. Oh, and, interesting. And that could help because yeah, more people. And and yeah, if, if a farm exists and has existed for a long time and has 10 employees every season, geez, 10 people could take on this farm and that could be really cool. And then there's also the option of thinking through your ownership structure and a person could continue to farm and could bring one of their employees on as a co-owner. Um, or more of their employees on as a co-owner. And that would involve so much like internal work of like, ah, like <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> really hard to wean ourselves of, of the ownership models that we know, but it would be so cool if it happened. <laughs> yeah, especially when like for farmers so often the retirement plan is just like the equity they've been building for a long time and it's it isn't as much in like the salary that they're pulling in each year from their their crops it's just like they're paying down more of all of these assets that they have so yeah it it kind of feels like a a bit of a tough nut to crack i guess (laughs) this is like the big the big question right And so I'll say this, I mean, Hannah, what you described is what we often call like a cooperative conversion. So there, I don't want to say none exist off the top of my head. I don't know of examples of cooperative conversions of farms, but it is increasingly being used as a business, you know, transition succession plan, particularly with like small rural businesses, you know, baby boomer retiring, don't have children or, you know, an obvious person to sell the business to, but have a dedicated group of employees. And so in, in kind of co-op development world where I live, there's like a whole sphere of work now that's really focused on conversions but on that we call cooperative conversions of, of businesses that and largely to employee ownership it's not it's not always that way but so they become worker-owned cooperatives um, there are a number of examples um, that we have in Wisconsin and it's not it, it doesn't have to be a retiring business owner and there are lots of ways to structure how the sale happens and so and the sooner someone starts thinking about it, and bringing employees into the fold and ascertaining if that should be the, the path, you can draw out the buyout, right? So it makes it more feasible. And so we talk a lot about it being like an, an owner financed conversion, where it's just that the, the original, you know, single owner or whatever is, is slowly exiting and employees are, are slowly buying the business from them. And, and it doesn't have to involve a massive amount of debt or, you know, like a rapid transition. So our center, the Center for Co-ops is, is doing that work. There are a number of organizations around the country, some groups we partner with, like ICA Group and Project Equity, who are really kind of becoming experts in the worker co-op conversion space and providing a lot of resources and direct technical assistance. So it's definitely a, a cool, you know, I would love to see it happen in the, in the ag space. Um, is it possible for the... <laughs> 
this is this is a little bit of a joke, but is it possible for like the uh, the workers to have a hostile takeover where they seize the means of production? I don't think it's possible. To create. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. <clears throat> um, As a you know, I don't know how that plays out to like their <laughs> farmers market customer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? But um, yeah. But no, it's. I think there are a number. There are several things that you've said, Hannah. That when I think about the more like traditionally, stru- you know, structured farms couple that's farming, whether or not they inherited the farm. There are sessions at Moses and roundtables and all that about how hard it is. I mean, hard farming is hard and it can be really hard on relationships, right? And when I think about what you and Emily laid out in your operating agreement, you know, and bylaws, and I feel, I, I think to myself, how many farm couples could benefit from like taking the time to lay that out? <laughs> I'm not saying it would make the farming easier but like I think we we we're very often in situations where we kind of take for granted how decision making happens and certain processes right and you're like well I've kind of always done this way so I guess we'll always do it this way and one of the many reasons I love co-ops is that it forces a group however large or small that group to pause and be really intentional about their dynamic and how they make decisions and, and do lots of things. Right. And, um, all of us can benefit from that. It's, you know, forces you to not just take things for granted. Yeah. Emily and I joke about how so many people think we're married. We're not married, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and we also joke about how, like, it is like we're married, you know, in, in the, in terms of how committed we are to each other and to this thing that we're doing together. And, um, yeah. And then imagining taking on another member, it's like marrying another person, you know, it's like a lot of emotional stuff to to figure out as we learn how to collaborate with more and more people. So yeah, I also agree that like any kind of relationship can benefit from really thinking things through and making an operating agreement. <laughs> I'm working with a couple startup co-ops right now in Wisconsin that both will be what we call a hybrid or multi-stakeholder co-op. And so they'll have producer and worker members and working through bylaw development right now, actually both of them and on a call last evening with one of them, we're talking through, you know, what does the membership process look like? And someone asked the question, you know, what is the point of having kind of like a trial period and onboarding period with, you know, a producer member or a worker member? I use the analogy of it's the dating period before you decide whether or not you want to marry them. <laughs> you know, once they become an owner in the business, that's a really big deal. Um, and so it's, it's often advised to date for a little while. So it's funny to hear you, how you and Emily talk about it. But yeah, so for Hannah, for farmers or food producers who are considering some sort of alternative ownership model, you know, perhaps like a cooperative, any final um, words of advice, recommendations to share from your experience so far? Yeah, I would say just talk to a lot of people about it and get your advice from everyone you can think of. Because, you know, a lot of people have things to say that I wouldn't have think of, especially I've noticed people in different generations than me think differently about about things. And yeah, I've been leaning on my community for sure. And I also am 
totally excited to be leaned on. And <laughs> if people want to talk about, about what would make sense for, for them, I can, I can hear them out and, and offer some ideas. So I think also just recognizing that, especially in, the, in, in worker-owned situations and in starting new enterprises, it just takes like way longer than you think it's going to take. So just being prepared to just be in the process for for a good long time. Yeah. And so what was some of the advice that you got when you asked a bunch of people and different generations and stuff? When I talked to my mom about bringing on a third person, she's like, once you bring on a third person, they could vote you out. <laughs> um, but like <laughs> thinking about thinking about that kind of those dynamics and, and thinking about it in a different way. Yeah, is one thing that I, I remember a lot of. And even you know, even early on when Emily was joining the the business, so many people like looked at me funny and were like, you don't have to let her own it <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and it's like, no, I really want to. And and so just, just having those different perspectives to help me clarify what it was that I was trying to do. Do you have like a, like, are, are you interested in, in like pitching the idea of letting someone else into ownership to other farmers or like... Yeah. Do you have anything to say about that? Like uh, more about like, why is this a good idea? Like if you're a farmer doing it on your own? Totally. I, I absolutely advocate for um, working with other people. Um, it's just the, the like management burden of farming is just so much and that you don't think about when you're a farm worker and the risk of farming is just so much and and so many people want to be farmers but there aren't very many pathways to do that and so if you can if you can figure out ways to help people into it and they have to be people that you want to work with and you know trial periods are great um and that kind of thing but um yeah it's made my life so much better like one person only has so many skills and and emily and i it's it's been magical kind of because we very much mesh personality wise but we also have like kind of different focuses or skill sets and just to have have that kind of redundancy to be able to keep a business going and it's also it's also to me interestingly a matter of legacy like so many farmers build this farm and then it ends when they stop farming and that's so sad <laughs> to lose a farm to lose an institution that that a community has has happily supported for decades you know and and so how how to how to continue farms certain farms and, and legacies uh, feels really worth doing <laughs> Yeah, especially in our community that cares so much about building the soil over time. It's like it, if you don't find a way to pass it on to someone like-minded, then it might just end up being in GMO corn for the next 30 years. So yeah, it's, um, it, it's a really interesting pathway to that. And I appreciate that a lot. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this and um, really appreciate all the work you're doing there and a well-deserved change maker award and yeah maybe you could share a little bit so we're gonna have a field day at your farm do you want to share like what we'll talk about on that field day and like what kind of things to expect yeah so 
on that field day, we'll definitely talk about our, our business structure and all of the things that we've talked about on this podcast, but we also get to be in the field. So we'll show you our no-till experimentation. We're, we're doing a SARE grant to work on our no-till system. And so we'll, we'll be showing that and we'll also let you see the animals, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the sheep and the, the pigs. Thanks to Kelly Maynard from the UW Center for Cooperatives and to Hannah Breckbill of Humble Hands Harvest. If you want to learn more about what Hannah and Emily are doing, you can watch the YouTube video of Hannah's Changemaker Award acceptance speech. And if you are going to be anywhere near Decorah, Iowa on July 31st, you can meet them in person and see their farm. Links to both the Changemaker speech and the field day are in the show notes. And thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. You can still register for the Growing Stronger Collaborative Conference through the end of March and watch all of the amazing content from the virtual conference. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. Our farmer specialists can talk to you about their roles in all kinds of cooperatives, as well as everything organic farming related, including grain, vegetables, fruit, all kinds of livestock, beekeeping, organic certification, food safety, marketing, urban farming, land access, and more. These services are available in English, Hmong, Spanish, Swahili, and Somali. Again, that's 888-90-MOSES or 888-906-6737, or you can visit mosesorganic.org ask. If you have any questions about today's episode or have ideas for future episodes, please contact me at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Our theme song is Summerfields by The Tenements. Thanks again for listening.